not even sure if sponsoring your own podcast is a thing, but we're going to give it a go for the remainder of this series because She Can, She Did has just launched the UK's first ever benefits programme curated for and by self-employed women in the UK. And so I wanted to use this opportunity to tell you all a little bit about it. The new She Can, She Did Benefits programme provides all self-employed women, female founders and freelancers with access to the health and financial benefits that come hand in hand with a corporate career, like pensions, health insurance, gym memberships, eye care, etc, etc, plus a whole host of additional fashion, beauty, well-being, parenthood and lifestyle incentives too, with over 60 plus brands on board and counting, including the likes of Pure Gym, Hiscox, Penfold and Vision Express on the more traditional benefits front, to the likes of Esper, Bloom and Wild, Higher Street, HelloFresh and Oh Mama on the ultimate rewards front. For just £5.99 per month, you will gain access to a whole host of exclusive benefits and rewards to support both your business and your life, which, let's face it, will become all the more important as we all try and navigate the uncertainty that the coming months present. Plus, all members benefit from weekly online events with industry experts at no extra cost too, along with many, many more perks of the programme. Visit shecanshedid.com for more details if you're interested, or of course, feel free to just click on the link in this episode's show notes. I feel like Cheryl when I say the next bit, but here goes. She can, she did. Your resilience rewarded. Hello everyone and welcome back to the She Can She Did podcast, aka the podcast that shares the honest realities of what female founders in the UK really have to push through behind the scenes. What's in all of course, to not just launch but run, grow and sustain their businesses to date. If we haven't met yet, I'm Fee and I'm the founder of She Can She Did slash the one asking the questions throughout this chat. Now, this week, the spotlight falls on Suki Jutler, co-founder of a business that has been nicknamed the Uber for the gold and diamond industry, that is Market Orders, an award-winning B2B platform that she launched four years ago that enables independent retail jewellers to buy gold and diamond jewellery directly, securely and seamlessly from international suppliers using blockchain technology. Having won several awards, including Asian Woman of Achievement, Female Entrepreneur of the Year and named Top 100 European Digital Pioneer by the Financial Times and Google, not to mention being an ambassador and mentor for the UK Department of International Trade's Women in Fintech Global Initiative, which brings together like-minded women working in the fintech space. The former investment banker turned entrepreneur sat down to chat with me a few weeks ago about the realities that she's faced behind the scenes in her incredibly inspiring business journey so far. From selling her hordes of handbags and clothes to save money in the early days, why Ben and Jerry's came in handy when she realised that she needed to walk away from £250,000 of investment, to how she's learnt en route how to block out unsolicited advice and trust her own judgement when it comes to decision making. This is Suki's story so far. As always, I hope you enjoy it. I mean, Suki, I feel like I can't pretend that I have any idea about how blockchain and cryptocurrency works. But in your own words, for someone like me, what is your business all about? 
and we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me on the show, Fiona. So yeah, with Market Orders, I am the co-founder and the chief operating officer, and I have a great CEO and co-founder and an amazing team who back me up. But what we do at Market Orders is we're a four-year-old company, and we're essentially a marketplace where we connect independent jewelry retailers directly to suppliers so that they can purchase finished gold and diamond jewelry products. And the reason we created this marketplace is because myself and my co-founder have been working in the jewelry space for a number of years, whereby we were operating as independent wholesalers. And what we found was this industry is so traditional and it's very old fashioned and they haven't really fully embraced the wonders of technology. And what we found was there were just so many processes and systems that were being done in person. They were being done offline. And when processes are also happening in that way, and especially when you're dealing with very high value products like real gold, there's also lots of opportunities to basically do things that you shouldn't be doing, such as mm. you know, fraud. And the gold industry is known for a lot of money laundering and a lot of fraudulent behavior. And that's simply because so much of the transactions and what happens in the industry is quite opaque and it's not very transparent. So what we saw when we were operating as wholesalers was that it was very difficult for us to purchase the goods from the manufacturers and then bringing them back into the country where there was just so many rules and regulations and then trying to sell those products to independent jewelry stores. And for most of them, the only way that they can get the stock they need to put in their shops is through independent wholesalers like myself walking into the store. But yet again, that creates a whole host of problems because I'm not known to this independent jeweler. The gold we were carrying was literally in briefcase. So it's not very, you know, a safe way to actually transport gold, you know, walking around the streets with briefcases full of gold. And so what we thought was, wouldn't it just be way easier for me and for them is if we just had an online marketplace where suppliers could actually list their products online and then independent jewelers could actually just go online and order what they needed. So market orders is essentially, I call it the Uber for the gold and diamond industry. What we're really doing is aggregating supply and demand. And if we are able to bring volume orders to the suppliers, then we can actually negotiate uh, cheaper prices. And who doesn't like a cheaper price, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's good for the suppliers and it's good for the retailers. Now, just taking it one step further, you were just asking about blockchain technology and how does that all come in? So I sort of fell into the blockchain world very accidentally. I do have a technology background. I spent over 10 years working in banking where I was often working with the technology processes that were working behind the scenes. So I was able to see how technology was being used to basically move finances and money and transactions uh, between banks and around the world. So I started to find out a lot about how transactions and money was being moved over the internet. And that's where blockchain comes in. So blockchain is, you know, I'm going to like try and dumb it down and make it really simple to understand because I do think the barriers to technology is usually because people don't understand what it is. Mm. And I really want everyone to understand it because it can be so life changing. And I do believe that the next generation and if you look at the people who create wealth, it's because they've understood technology and how to leverage it. So essentially what blockchain is, is just imagine it's like a Google spreadsheet where Everyone has access to it, but no one actually controls it. So right now, if I actually shared a Google spreadsheet with you, I am the one who actually ultimately controls it. And even if I shared a copy with you, 
you could download that copy and then you could make some changes and then you could re-upload it and wipe away my original file. Or I could go in and make some changes and then send it back to you and you wouldn't necessarily know what I've changed. So in the banking world, what we found was transactions were just taking far too long to be processed. So in my business, when I have to pay my suppliers who are often based in Singapore, Malaysia or Dubai, it can take up to two weeks for my funds to reach their account. And mm. then the worst thing is I'll get an email from my bank saying we couldn't process this transaction because you didn't put enough money in to cover the fees. And I'm just like, I did cover the fees. And then I find out, oh, there's like three other middlemen who I was supposed to pay. So it can be very frustrating and it's just really not needed. So what I started to do was I just got really interested. I followed my curiosity and I started to learn what blockchain was about and what it could do. And it really appealed to me. I thought it could be a real game changer. And I started to look at its key properties. So one of those is no one person actually owns the data, which means no one can actually control it and monopolize it. The second value the blockchain contains is that it's transparent. So if you go to your computer and you download the Bitcoin software, you can actually see all the transactions that have happened on Bitcoin. And you can also see where changes have taken place because no transactions are deleted. You'll just see a record of what's actually happened. So basically, what you're able to see is the blockchain allows a digital footprint to be viewed by anyone. So it's an open database that can be viewed by anyone and also contributions can be made by anyone. So going back to the gold industry, in my experience, what we found was when we were getting products from suppliers and they were sending it to the UK and then we would have to send it on to our customers, the gold was basically changing hands multiple times. And we unfortunately had some instances where the package would arrive at the airport, it would go through its checks, and then someone would open the package, switch out the gold for a, a fake product, and then send it to us. And when I would open the product and I would try to sell it to my customers who are the independent jewelers, they would be able to test the gold and it would be fake. And so I was basically, you know. And you look like the bad one. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's my reputation on the line. Yeah. And, you know, I've just been defrauded of thousands of pounds. So I just started to think about how could we actually be able to track and trace, you know, so right now we're recording this in the COVID pandemic where track and trace is quite vital. So this is like the same concept. How can you actually track and trace high value jewelry items right from production all the way to the end? So it's logging the customer journey all the way until it gets to the consumer. And in this way, you can also be sure and prove to your customer that you are actually sourcing gold from ethical mines. You know, how do you know your banana is actually for your trade? You know, you're yeah. relying on that sticker that they put onto the banana and then sometimes they charge you a little extra for it. But I started to think about what if you could actually make use of smart chips and smart sensors, which are tiny little chips, which are embed into the actual jewelry product when it's actually being manufactured. And at that stage, you would actually input all the information related to that particular item, such as the composition of metals in that item. What is the percentage of gold in that particular item? Who designed it? Where was it manufactured? Which mine did the gold come from? And then every time it's being moved along the supply chain, all the different participants, such as the cargo clearance people, the customs clearance people, and all the other middlemen who have to handle and process the product, they can actually just scan and tag the item and say, yes, we got it, and it's not being tampered with. And then it would just basically flow along the chain. You know what, you could be wearing like a ring that has something in it that basically says the whole supply chain. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's like a tiny wow. chip. And, you know, there's so many technology companies out there now who are producing chips that are the size of a blood cell. So it's naked to the invisible eye. But all you would just do is scan it. We would create an app and that app would then connect to the blockchain software. And it, you, you can see that entire digital footprint. And then the best thing about it is whenever, like if you try to sell back jewelry to your jewelers, you're always going to get ripped off and you're never happy with the price. Like, for example, with diamonds as well, it's really difficult to actually see whether it's a fake or not. And if you're not a professional, you wouldn't know. So if you were gifted a diamond ring and say you paid £5,000 for it and then you try to sell it three years later, if the jeweler tells you, oh, I'm sorry, it's only worth £200, you kind of just say, okay, then I'll just go along with what you have to say. But if you can present this piece of jewelry with the chip tagged into it and it's documented the entire journey and it proves that this is a five carat diamond ring, then you know that there's a certain price that you can ask for it. So I think this level of transparency is actually good for everyone along the supply chain. Suki, I'm like sat here like, wow. There's so many different like ways I want to take this, but I think my background before launching She Can, She Did, I used to produce finance conferences for a publishing house. And I remember I started that job straight out of uni in 2013 and blockchain was something because a part of my job was putting together the conference agendas. And I remember I looked after our FX portfolio. Blockchain, we were kept being told we have to get it in there somewhere. And there was a lot of skepticism. And to this day, there still is around it to people that don't know the industry that is. So going into a business, when you launch a business, obviously, I don't need to tell you, your pride is on the line. And ultimately, if anything goes wrong, it falls on your shoulders. Four years ago, was there any kind of doubt or how did you kind of hold your nerve going into an industry that still receives a bit of skepticism? Yeah, that's a really great question, Fiona. And I think what I would say is it's just human nature that we don't really like change. And it's also human nature that when we tend not to understand something, then we kind of instinctively put up a wall and we say, this isn't really, you know, something that I want or I understand. So I'll give you a a really basic example. I was so against getting an Apple iPhone for years because I just didn't think it made sense to have email on my phone when I used my phone for texting and calling. (laughs) And I just thought, you know, why would I want to check my email on my phone? But the minute I got my iPhone and then I, you know, synced all my accounts, I can now say I only use my phone for email. I don't even use it for making phone calls. I won't even use it for text messages because I use WhatsApp to message people. So what this really is, is whenever a new technology comes to the market, you need to be able to show people enough benefits for them to get over that small pain hurdle of having to learn what this technology is all about yeah. until they can actually embrace it. So it did take me a while to actually understand what blockchain was. I just followed my curiosity. I was really interested in what it could do. And I kind of got involved with it in a number of different ways. So my first foray into blockchain was when I actually published one of my books. So I've written three books and one of them was published using blockchain technology. Now, when I was researching this idea, I didn't even understand, like, what does that even mean for a book to be published on the blockchain? But it's only when I actually started to do it that I could actually see what the benefits were. So I'm going to give you a little mini case study so your listeners can actually understand the differences. So right now, my book is called Escape the Cubicle. It's like a self-help book about how I left the corporate world to set up my own businesses. When I released my book, I put it onto Amazon. Amazon has its like vetting process. They went through it. 
Now, every time someone purchases a book on Amazon, I will get paid 70% of the listing fee. And that 70% fee only comes to my bank account three months after the sale is originally made. Now, I am fully reliant on Amazon to send me reports on a monthly basis to tell me how many copies of the book I've sold. Because on Amazon, I don't have any way to connect with the end consumer. So Amazon is like the person who actually owns the data behind who's actually buying and selling my book. And they are also in charge of doing the payments and the transactions. Now, when I put my book and listed it on the blockchain, so there's a Latvian company called Publica. You can go to publica.com. And what they do is they allow you to publish your book on the blockchain. So what that basically means is I uploaded my book files into their publishing platform. And then someone can actually buy my book using cryptocurrency. And when they purchase my book, they have an app. The book is downloaded directly to them. And they have a special key that ensures that only that particular person can download my book. So in this way, I'm actually protected against piracy. So people can't download my book multiple times and then sell it or send it across to other people. And when they basically pay me the price of the book, I get 99.9% of the listing fee. So that's a lot more than 70%. And here's like the magic part. I get the money into my digital wallet within like 10 seconds. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Yeah, and the other amazing thing is, if you buy a digital book on Kindle or any of those digital platforms, the book is downloaded onto your specific device, which means you can't actually forward a Kindle to somebody else. But if you buy my book using cryptocurrency, you can actually send my book to someone else's digital wallet as long as the person pays for it. So now you've created digital books that can actually be sent to anyone around the world. Now, can you imagine in countries where literacy levels are low because they can't afford libraries or books, you can actually gift digital books to someone on the other side of the world and you don't have to pay hefty postage fees. You can just send it just using cryptocurrency. So it was when I started to dabble into this myself that I started to see how efficient the transactions and processes were. And if I can just share another example. So in the UK, there's a, a company called Lush. Lush do these beautiful soaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you go into the shops, you'll just be hit by this avalanche of beautiful smells. <laughs> and I actually went to a talk that they were hosting about a year or so ago. And it was just such a beautiful story. So Lush Cosmetics have started to pay their suppliers using cryptocurrency. And this is because one of the farmers is in Africa and he provides the cocoa butter that goes into their soaps. And what they found was they had paid his invoice, but six months later, he contacted them and said, I'm still waiting for my invoice to be paid. And Lush Cosmetics said, oh, we sent it six months ago. Uh, we don't really know what's happened. So the farmer basically went back to the bank and found that the bank had just put it into their own accounts and were not releasing the funds. And so for six months, he had to actually pull out his three daughters from school because he was unable to pay the school fees. And his three daughters had to work on the farm to help support the family. And when I heard this story, it was just heartbreaking because this is the reason why so many women across the world, and especially in developing countries, miss out on education. And it's simply because the funds are getting stuck somewhere or someone else is taking them. So when Lush Cosmetics found out, they were horrified because they really pride themselves on taking care of the suppliers. And so they switched to paying him using cryptocurrency. 
So using a mobile app, they were able to send him Bitcoin and now they settle their invoices and he gets paid almost on the same day that he sends his invoice, which basically means he can take care of his family. But the most beautiful part of this story is his three daughters don't have to have their education interrupted. They can still go to school because their father can still pay the fees. Mm. So when you think about blockchain and what it can do going forward, it's a lot more than just paying transactions or downloading books. I think it can really fundamentally impact people who are really left behind and neglected mm. by the financial systems. Well, I'm just thinking it's just like the classic self-employed story where you send an invoice and then don't hear anything for X number of months because big companies, it's on their terms kind of thing. So I'm just trying to like think about how it would apply to this audience, but just silly things like that for freelancers to get paid instantly is like a freelancer's dream, right? So yeah, no, that's amazing. I want to go back to the beginning for four years ago though, Suki, like when it came to, you say obviously we, and there's a founding team, how did you approach when the idea and you kind of noticed the challenges and the problem that you wanted to solve, when that popped into your head, what were your initial steps or I suppose what did you prioritize from the team, from the getting the product sorted, the marketing to get this thing off the ground? Because it's so easy to just have an amazing idea like that in your head, but actually making it reality is a completely different ballgame. Yeah, I always say, you know, isn't there a quote when your plans hit reality or something, you know, your plans go out the window. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So I think a business is like a living, breathing baby or an entity. Every day you're co-creating with it. And I think there's only so much you can actually plan. But I think the best business leaders are those that can actually co-create with the business as it evolves. So market orders, I always say it's the phoenix that arose from the ashes of my other previous two startups in the jewelry space. So some people might say, oh, there were two failures, but I prefer to say there were stepping stones that helped me to understand what I was doing right and what I was doing wrong. And those two previous businesses helped me to actually solidify my business model, which is how Market Orders was created. So the first two businesses I had, which were also in the jewelry space, I was actually operating as an independent wholesaler. So I was on the other end of the supply chain. And I was dealing with factory owners and manufacturers and understanding how to basically buy and sell gold. But what happened was I just found that there were just so many delays in the process. There was just so much paperwork that was being passed back and forth. And there was just so much room for human error. And I learned from it on the downside because human errors usually tend to cost you a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So, I was learning by burning the cash in my pocket because of all the mistakes that we were basically making. It was only when I basically sat down and I started to notice that our customers, who were the independent jewelers, they would ask for orders, you know, like on an ad hoc basis. But sometimes we would get two different customers asking for the same product. And then I would be placing two separate orders with the same manufacturer. And he would send me the same goods in different parcels. And that meant I was getting hit by two huge fees. So there's like a lot of customs fees and duty and taxes that we have to pay when we are bringing gold in. So I just basically sat down and on a not very fancy spreadsheet, I basically just started to write down all the orders that were coming in and I could see a pattern. So I started to aggregate the most popular items and orders that were coming in. And I said to my co-founder, Instead of processing every order as and when it comes in, 
why don't we just have a window of seven days and then we aggregate all the orders by product type and then at the end of the week, why don't we just aggregate the orders and then send one large order to the supplier? And by doing this, the supplier was so happy because we were giving him a large volume order that he was actually able to give us huge discounts, which basically meant it was a lot cheaper for us to place orders this way. And the benefits were that I was able to pass on the cost savings to the independent shops, which meant they could play around with their margins a lot more when they're selling the item to the end consumer. So this evolution of how we came across this idea was over like a number of years. And that's where the idea came from by aggregating the orders. I thought I need a spreadsheet. And I said, why don't we just put up a rudimentary website and just test it out? So we put together a really basic WordPress website. I actually used some offshore tech company in India. I worked with them for a couple of months and just really using the basic processes, we just created an online catalog and I asked some of my customers to go online and place orders. And then what I did was I just basically followed the customer journey and I was asking my customers what the experience was like. And the good thing about this was when I was running my previous businesses, we were managing to get a net profit margins of like 1% which was not a lot. And it's really not a sustainable way to run a business. But by taking everything online, we were able to prove that we could actually get 10% profit margins. And this was simply just by increasing the efficiency in the way we were running the operations. It also meant that me or my co-founder didn't have to fly out to Singapore to collect the goods in person. We could just ask the supplier, just go online, check your account and look at the orders that have come through and just let us know if you can fulfill it or not rather than just randomly taking a flight to Singapore, knocking on the supplier's door, and then he says, okay, these are the only items I have, so you can just buy it or you can just walk out. And if you've just spent like 2,000 pounds on plane tickets and hotel accommodation, you don't want to come back empty-handed. You need to buy products so that you can sell it and, and make some money. So by doing it this way, we were able to see that we could actually really embrace technology. And actually, this is like the mindset shift for us. We basically went from being wholesalers to an online marketplace. So whereby before I had a lot of money stuck in inventory, now market orders doesn't hold any inventory. We just match the suppliers and the customers together. We aggregate the orders and we make sure that the supply and logistics is being done in the right way. So in a way, we're a tech company. We don't hold any stock. And this is such a better way for us to run a business. So the business has iterated so many times, but at the same time, I couldn't have planned it. It happened because I was trying to solve my own pain points. I was getting frustrated with the suppliers not being able to provide us with what we wanted and us not being able to give what the customers wanted. So I thought, wouldn't it just be better if you sent them to an online destination and all the products are there rather than sending them different product images on WhatsApp to different people all the time? Mm. So it was really just trying to solve my own pain point that we got to this business model in the end. Yeah, I think it's the best way. And what you just said there about not actually holding any of the gold now, when you said that you're the um, Uber of the gold world. It's like Uber don't own cars, do they? Delivery don't own restaurants. ASOS doesn't own a shop front. Yeah, it's just very clever. Going back to the we though, who who is the we and how did the we come about? Are they people that you worked with? You know, how did you meet? Why them? And I'm really interested, you know, for anyone going into business with another person or people, how you've managed that relationship as the business has evolved, split out the roles, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, so I think I was quite lucky in that my co-founder, Ram, so we met each other because we were both working in the banking space for different banks, but we kind of knew each other from those similar circles. And he actually worked as a gold and diamond bullion trader for one of the banks. So he was the guy who had the idea and he had all the knowledge about how the gold and diamonds are flowing around the financial systems. So we were basically friends. And we had actually done some small projects together in the past. And he came to me with this idea saying that I want to set up this wholesale business. Can you help me with basically the paperwork side and the operation side of it? And I spent 10 years in the bank as a project manager. So that was kind of like my strength. And so I said, okay, I don't mind. It was a completely brand new industry for me. So I thought it was quite interesting. So we basically just started to work together like that. So he's really the customer facing guy. He's a great salesman. And he has an incredible level of in-depth knowledge about this industry. And that's really important for an industry that only operates on face value. You need to have those trusted relationships. So he spent over 10, 15 years getting to know all the people who own the mines and the factories and the suppliers. So he's got that great relationship network. And so I came in and I was helping with the tech development, the product development and managing the accounts and the PR and the marketing. And over the years, what I found is it is so important that you're constantly communicating with each other and having really frank discussions. So at the beginning, sometimes I would be a bit hesitant to tell him if he was not doing what he's meant to be doing or I was not happy about something. But now what we've done is we've got such a good relationship in that we actually know what our strengths are. And he is like the complete opposite of me in some areas and I am the complete opposite of him in other areas. And that actually enables us to you know, ensure that the business is being taken care of on all aspects. So my strength is on PR, marketing, branding, product development, and tech development. And I'm often the face of the company because I speak a lot at a lot of events, do interviews like this. Whereas his strength is dealing with customers. You know, if I go and visit a customer and walk into their shop, the first thing they'd say to me is, oh, it's you today. Where's Ram? We'd rather talk to him. <laughs> so I kind of, I know where my place is and he knows where his place is. And he's really amazing at developing relationships. He's amazing at sales. And I think to be a good business leader, the most important thing is not having a great idea or even having a great team. It's actually knowing yourself. Because if you don't know what you're good at and what you're not good at, then you're going to be wasting your time trying to do everything. So I know where I'm not so great at or the tasks that I don't particularly want to do. And then I outsource them. And so, you know, bringing in the rest of the team, again, I, I think I'm quite lucky. I was able to accumulate the initial market orders team through the people I already knew through my own network. So these are professionals who were doing you know, UX design for other companies. And then I would just say to them, hey, do you mind helping me out for a couple of hours a month on this particular project? And so they started to help and they really started to fall in love with the idea and the business. And that's how I started to actually get the team created. So it was actually over a number of years. Mm. I would probably say like the core team of market orders, I've known them for over 10 years. And we've all worked together in some shape or form in the different iterations of the business. And then more recently, over the last two years, we've also expanded our team through covering marketing and sales and PR. And those people I've actually met through networking and going to startup related events, but also using my network and asking, hey, do you know someone who's really great at PR? So I have an amazing PR team. I met Caroline, I think through some WhatsApp groups that we're in. 
she was looking for work. And so I took her details. We met for a coffee. I saw the work she had done. And then we brought her on board. And so I think it is really important to take your time when you're finding people. We have also worked with people that didn't work out. And that's also okay because it just means that their skills or their values are not aligned with yours. So I would always say something that I've learned really is don't jump to signing someone up full time without testing them out first. Mm. And I think that you should try to give contracts out for three or six months and test them out, see their work. Because anyone can fluke an interview and be amazing. But you, at a startup level, you're really limited on time and cash. And you want to make sure that it's being spent in the right way. And you also want to recruit for the right attitude. I've learned that not everyone is startup material. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely think it's 100% not for everyone. 100%. Absolutely. And, you know, personally speaking, I came from a corporate background. And if I've tried to get some corporate people into my business, I've just seen that they typically need like a team of five people to help them to do the job I've asked them to do. So, <laughs> you know, startup people are very much go-getters. They take responsibility and they're very action orientated. And of course, when the business grows and it becomes more process orientated, then you do need people who just follow the directions that you set out. But at the stage that we're at, I need people around me who will co-create with me and they won't just say yes to everything I say, but they push back and say, actually, Suki, I don't think this is the right thing to do. And maybe we should do this instead. So I really, really love that collaboration. And the people that I have in my team are exactly like that. So I feel so lucky that I have such an incredible team. I'm not a one man, one woman band. No business is created with one person. This is like a 100% team effort. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love that. I mean, you mentioned there the whole kind of strap for cash startup life. I'm interested again, this idea, you know, when you start talking about all these different supply chains and bringing everything online and UX design, et cetera, et cetera. To me, I just see like money bubbles coming out. Your head as you're speaking because it sounds expensive. And it's always something that I never want to skim over. So how did you and your co-founder go about funding this? And kind of as the business has scaled, how has that funding process evolved? Yeah, so, you know, every business, I think if you can get it off the ground with minimal cash, then that's really the way you need to go. But for me personally and my co-founder, what we basically did was we put our life savings into this business to get it up and running. So I was working in banking for over 10 years and I was actually quite a good saver. And then in the last three years of my sort of corporate life, I set up a financial consultancy where I was doing consulting for financial firms. And I was very lucky that I got to a position where I was earning six figures. So I did that for around three years and I had amassed a huge stash of money, which I saved. You know, normal people were telling me to put this into a mortgage down payment. And I was just like, no way. <laughs> I really just wanted to start my own business. So I basically self-funded and bootstrapped this myself to help me do that as well. The two years prior to me jumping out of the corporate world to actually go full-time in my business, because I knew I was going to be living off my savings, I did make a good choice in basically downsizing my life for two years prior to me taking that leap. So I basically downsized. I moved into a studio apartment. I sold my car. I sold anything of value. So in the banking world, I did a lot of retail therapy because I hated my day job. So I just basically, you know, spend my way to happiness. So I had a bunch of like Gucci handbags and, you know, every sort of handbag. It's just ridiculous when I think about it. <laughs> the amount of money I spent on handbags and shoes and clothes. 
So I basically sold anything of value online. I use eBay and I use some other online websites to basically sell stuff. And I actually got a personal shopper to basically come to my home and she took everything and she sold it. And I didn't have to pay her for it because we just did a 50-50 split on that. And then also other boring things I did was I basically just stopped eating out for lunch. I was actually taking my own packed sandwiches. I stopped buying teas and coffees. I know some people might be like, oh my God, this is mad. But I was so... Not at all. I literally adore you right now. I feel like (laughs) this is a reality though. And I feel like it needs to be spoken about. Like I really don't see how when you launch a business, unless there's money just being given to you, I don't see how you can't make those sacrifices. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, when I was always turning down lunches with my colleagues, it obviously didn't make me the most popular person in the office, but I was just like, I really don't care because I don't like being here and I just, I want to set up my own business and I'm willing to pay the price to be seen as a loner and an outcast because I really want to start my own thing. So I was just, you know, buying boxes of techie tea bags. You get a hundred bags, I think for a pound. (laughs) Oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah, I had a whole spreadsheet thing going on and I was just basically saving as much as I possibly could in every way possible. But you know, I did it with a lot of happiness. I was excited that this money is actually going to allow me the freedom to run my own business because, you know, some people might say money is not important, but it is because Mm. money gives you options and it gives you choices. And by me making those sacrifices early on, it actually gave me the opportunity to run my business for, you know, over three years without having the burden or the worries that money can bring if you can't basically pay your bills. And I do think that trying to get a business off the ground is already so stressful. But if you're worrying about how you're going to meet your next month's rent payment, it's going to sap away a lot of creativity and it's going to take away a lot of those choices. So I made that conscious decision to make those changes to my lifestyle so that I can actually collect a pot of money. And then I basically used those funds to pay for what was needed. But still, I was very frugal. And so my co-founder, he actually did the same. So we did have a decent amount of money to start off with. That was probably like our seed funding. And we used that money to basically fund the tech development. Again, we made a bunch of mistakes in that space as well. We signed contracts with a number of different tech companies who ended up taking a lot of money and then didn't deliver the product. And then we didn't actually have signed contracts in place to protect us. So we lost a lot of money in that way. So I would always say, no matter what stage you're at, always make sure you've got something written down. You don't have to go to a lawyer to draft it, but just have something written that says, I will pay you this if you deliver this, this and that. So in the event that they don't, you've got something written down. So when I was trying to fight back for my money, the lawyer was like, there's no evidence that you actually paid them this money, even though I had bank statements. And it was a lot of money. So yeah, just make sure you've covered yourself like that. And then that money lasted us around two and a half years. And then we got to a point where we were actually growing the business. So we actually needed a few more people to join us. And that's when we did our first crowdfunding round. And last year, we raised around £430,000 on crowdcube.com. So for those who don't know, Crowdcube is a crowdfunding platform where retail investors can come in and they can invest into your business from as little as £10 and they get an equity stake in your business. So yeah, so that's the funding journey to date. I'm just sat here in awe. Honestly, Suki, I just love this. Okay, now there's things I want to pick up on on that, the crowdfunding side, but I think it might tie in with what I'm just generally moving on to like challenges and stuff. I'm really interested in what you found to be the hardest part about this journey so far. 
And how have the challenges, I suppose, evolved from those early days when everything's new and exciting, but you haven't got anything to show for yourself yet, right through to now when you've got the team, you do have a very successful business to show for yourself, but there's obviously a pressure to maintain and sustain that going forward. Yeah, so I think if you had asked me this question right at the beginning of the journey, like four years ago, I think I would have said the hardest thing is probably getting your business up and running. But now, you know, hindsight is what they say, 2020 perfect vision. Now what I've actually learned is the only thing that actually will detrimentally hold you back is your own lack of confidence and self-belief. And when I started my business, I actually spent way too long listening to advisors. And for those, you know, this is an audio podcast and I'm putting air quotes right now. So (laughs) people who brand themselves as advisors and mentors would basically give me a lot of unsolicited advice saying things like I wasn't doing things right or I'm not approaching VCs right or I'm not talking to them in the right way. And so it kind of beat down on my confidence because I was fully aware that I had just come out of the corporate world. And yes, I did have some small businesses on the side. I had a publishing company before this. I had a life coaching business before this. And I ran my own financial consultancy business before this. But all of those were quite smaller scale compared to what I was trying to do. So I got a lot of nonsense advice such as, oh, you don't have a track record or, you know, you're not ready to be a co-founder or a COO because you don't have the relevant experience. And it was only when I started to basically have like an unlimited amount of self-belief and confidence in myself where I would just basically wake up every day and say, I can do this. And no matter what comes my way, I'll find a way. Because the wonderful thing about business is the concepts are there. Everyone knows to create a business, you basically need to sell something that costs less than it takes. So the difference is what you call a profit. So (laughs) it's it's not rocket science. But if you have people that tell you you can't do it or you you need advisors or mentors to help you, then you're going to constantly keep on double guessing your decisions. And I think in the early days, what I did was I was not confident in the decisions I was making. Whereas today, I look at the information I have to hand, but I trust myself that whatever decision I make, if it doesn't go the way I want it, I know I have it within me Mm. to find another way. There are multiple ways (laughs) to get to the solution that you want. And I think that sometimes you can feel a bit intimidated when you're talking to someone who says that they've run many businesses, who says that they've got all these connections to multiple VCs and angels. So you kind of feel like you have to go their way, but you have to really understand and actually follow your gut instinct. So I'll give you a a very quick example. Just before my crowdfunding, about a year before, I actually did what most entrepreneurs do and startups do is when you raise money, you go and approach a bunch of VCs to raise money because that's what you're told to do. But I think that's not really good advice. If you're very small scale, you should probably use your network first and go through family and friends. So I spent a lot of time chasing after VCs, which was a complete waste of time. But anyway, I got through to one VC who said they liked my business idea. And for four months, they basically strung me along. (laughs) One of the mistakes I made, and again, you only learn in hindsight, is he asked me for all the financial information, which I gave to him. And then he asked me, how much money do you have until you completely run out? And I told him, oh, four months. So what he did was he strung out the conversations for over four months until I was in such a bad situation where I was so desperate for the money that he basically gave me an incredibly rubbish deal. And so he offered me 250 grand 
And he was just so rude and obnoxious during those four months. And I just, in my heart, I just didn't feel happy taking his money, even though I knew <laughs> I have like, what, like 78 pounds in the account right now. <laughs> and I really <laughs> need this money. <laughs> And, you know, I think the straw that broke the camel's back was when he basically said to me, oh, you know, you're not even good enough to lead this company anyway. And he was just making a few comments like that, which I was first ignoring. And I think the final, final straw was when he kept on asking me for numerous financial files, which I kept on sending to him. And then he would call me at very awkward hours, like 6 a.m. or 10 p.m. to demand this information. So I just said to him, I would really like it if you could respect the working hour and not call me at these weird times demanding information. And by the way, check your email because I sent that file like 10 times to you. And he basically said to me, oh, Suki, if I'm going to invest in your business, I own you 24-7 so I can call you anytime I want. And that was literally when like the penny dropped. And I just said to myself, you know, Suki, stand true to your values. Your gut instinct is saying that this is not the right person with the right attitude or the right values for your business. And so I walked away from 250,000 pounds and I went home, got into bed and just felt so depressed and watched Netflix for the entire weekend, eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream. (laughs) Oh my God, the dream. I feel like Ben and Jerry's fixes everything. Yeah. But you know what though, like that's exactly it. And I've heard stories like that so many times about being led astray by investors like that and just, yeah, horrible stories like that. But it's so, your gut instinct just knows, doesn't it? And it's just like the worst thing you can do is just ignore it and try and suppress it because it's always right. It always knows. Yeah, absolutely. So I gave myself like two days to feel so rubbish about myself. And, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, you're mad. You walked away from all that money. The Monday came, the following week started. And I said to myself, you know, Suki, there are many people in the same situation as you and they've done it. And so can you. It's not rocket science. You just have to put in the effort. And I made a decision that I was willing to basically do the work to get to where I wanted to be. And so that's basically how I ended up turning down VC money and leading a crowdfunding campaign where we ended up raising twice the amount and from amazing investors who really support us. So I think sometimes when you are running a business, things can take a little longer than you anticipate or expect. Mm. But sometimes I think that you learn a lot during that time. So I've learned that patience is actually a key component of running a business. And just like the human being, there are periods of activity and there are periods of rest. And I feel a business is the same. There are periods where it's going to be really active and things are happening, but there's also going to be periods where it looks like things are not happening, but things are gently churning away in the background. For example, today, actually just yesterday, we launched a research paper. It's a 12,500 word research paper about blockchain and how it can be used in the jewelry industry. And that paper was two years in the making. And there were so many times during those two years where I thought this paper is never going to see the light of day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we launched it yesterday. It's got an amazing press coverage. And we're really hoping that this is really going to transform my industry. So yes, it took a little while. But I think some ideas need some time to germinate and, and grow and take their own time. Couldn't agree with you more. That's amazing. What did that investor say when you walked away? Did you hear anything? Oh, yeah. You're never going to be able to raise money if you walk away from me. And I was just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, yeah, hats off to you. I love that story. I feel like that's one of the ones that I'll keep coming back to. What have you learned rounding up about yourself throughout this whole process, aside from the fact you just said that that every day you can tell yourself that you've got this, but has anything taken you by complete surprise? 
or any roles or hats that you've had to wear that you didn't think that you'd enjoy but ended up loving? You know, go for it. What I've actually learned more is probably about myself in terms of what it is that really lights my soul. And I've allowed myself and given myself permission to follow my curiosity. And before I did it, so before I I used to think it was a waste of time to learn about certain things if you're not going to use it in your day job. But now what I've found is my business very much bleeds into my everyday life. So I don't really have a a work life or a personal life. It's all kind of blended together and it's amazing. And when I think about where I was like five years ago, stuck in a corporate job I absolutely hated, I just feel like life is so short to be doing things that you don't want to do. So I think what I've learned about myself is I've finally given myself permission and courage to follow my dreams and chase my curiosities. But most importantly, bringing that joy element into everything I do. You know, I've learned that my strengths are in communicating, in writing, and I love writing. I've got so many more books I actually want to produce. But I've also found that I've completely fallen in love with the whole technology space. And I think it's nice that when there's a diversity of women working in tech, it kind of helps to encourage other women or other people who didn't necessarily think that they could actually have careers in technology. So I hope that inspires them because technology isn't just about sitting and programming and coding. There's a lot of other things like design and graphics and words and communication and storytelling and narrative behind technology that you use. That's probably what I've learned, that I'm a lot more open to learning things and and going with the flow and believing in myself. (laughs) No, absolutely. And you mentioned there that obviously the work-life balance work leads into personal life. How do you make sure you're looking after yourself throughout that whole process, given that obviously when you run a business, there isn't that clear distinction between work and play? Yeah, so another great question, Fiona. I was always of the mindset where you should burn yourself out and just put in the hours and do the work. But now I've learned that there is such a thing as working smartly. So in the first, I would probably say two years of when I left the day job, I was just working like over 100 hours a week. I was burning myself out constantly. I was always overwhelmed. And I think two years into that journey, I actually really didn't enjoy what I was doing. And it really saddened me because this was supposed to be the dream. This is why I was having technique tea bags at work. This was like the <laughs> ultimate sacrifice. That's why you sold your Gucci bags. <laughs> yeah. So I just couldn't understand. And then it hit me. It was just, I wasn't taking care of myself. And I think that if you want your business to do well, you have to take care of the primary person who's running the business, which is yourself. So now what I do is I actually have a morning routine, which is, you know, most days, 99% of the time is non-negotiable. So what I do is I have a meditation practice. I will meditate for usually 45 minutes every day. As soon as I wake up, I make sure I drink at least two liters of water every day. So I'm feeling good. I also do at least an hour of exercise every day. And I've usually done that before 12 noon. So then the rest of the day, I'm completely free to focus on my business. But I also make sure that I sleep enough. So I do enjoy my sleep. And before I used to really try and reduce the amount of time I was sleeping because I thought I need to really be working. But what I found was really sleeping well is one of my greatest productivity tools. Because when I'm feeling really healthy and feeling really well rested 
and my body is free of aches and pains, it means I have so much free mental space freed up so that I can give my all to my business. Mm. And I think that you really do have to make sure that as well as having a good work ethic, you should also have a good rest ethic and don't feel bad or shy from taking time out to decompress. I used to also work weekends religiously. And now what I do is I do try to minimize work for two or three hours on the weekend, simply because I really do love what I do. So I kind of sometimes can't stop myself <laughs> from you know, doing the work. But whenever I do feel like I want to take a weekend off, I, I give myself that treat because it's my body telling me that I need a break. Also, what I do now is I do take some time to celebrate little wins. So whenever we get some press coverage or we win an award, I do just take a moment to thank my team and to just be really grateful that we've got to this place because I know that four years ago, I would have been so happy knowing where we are today. So I think you also have to show gratitude to that process and gratitude to yourself because you know what, you also need to be your number one cheerleader. So, you know, you've got to encourage and motivate yourself. And also ice cream always helps. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Suki, rounding up then, I basically end with a few statements. So I'll start and I'd like you to finish, please. So number one, being my own boss means? Owning your own success. Absolutely. When it's not quite going to plan, my advice would be to? Take a break, go for a walk, eat some ice cream and know that you'll figure it out somehow or another. Yeah, absolutely. If I could describe myself as a businesswoman, I'd say that I am. Open curious and just looking to make a positive change to everyone that I work with. And am I right in thinking also female entrepreneur of the year? I think your PR team, they said that you'd won an award and that you were female entrepreneur of the year and you'd won an Asian Women of Achievement Award. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's all these accolades, like it's good. Thank you. Those two. <laughs> if I could go back to say one of my business, I'd tell myself. That no matter what, you've got this. Believe in yourself. Absolutely. And very lastly, I want my legacy to be that. I had the courage to follow my dreams and passions. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much, Suki. Honestly, that's been so amazing. I feel like genuinely, I mean, I get inspired by all of them, but I think that one's just so interesting because it's just a completely different world to what so many of the listeners and myself are used to hearing about. So yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show, Fiona. I'm so you know, happy to be here. And I really hope that your listeners did feel that they got a lot of value out of it. And I'm on social media and LinkedIn. So if they do have a question, don't hesitate to contact me. And just thank you, Fiona, for what you do as well. You're really showcasing and putting a spotlight on incredible women doing such amazing things. And this will only inspire the next generation. So thank you so much for what you do. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. If you have a minute to spare and enjoyed it, of course, it would mean so much to me if you could please rate the podcast below or leave a review if you fancy being extra kind, as apparently it helps to give the series a little boost and helps other female founders and aspiring business owners to find it. For now, though, enjoy the rest of your day and please do look out for next week's episode. Mm -hmm.